Welcome to the Gotta Go Lean podcast. Listen to this episode and others at www.velaction.com. That's V-E-L-A-C-T-I-O-N.com. I'm Jeff Hajek, founder of Velaction Continuous Improvement. Enjoy the episode. Well, thank you for tuning in today. I appreciate you coming to listen to this latest podcast of the Gotta Go Lean blog. I have a special guest today, a recent winner of the Shingo Research Award. Her name is Karen Martin, and her book is called The Outstanding Organization. I met Karen a few years ago as I started into this um, lean support business, and I've bounced ideas back and forth with her over the years. So it's really an interesting culture when you do what we do. There's a lot of cooperation. So what I'm trying to do here today is um, let Karen talk about her book a little bit. It's a great book. And on that, Karen, did I leave anything out about your history? Oh, I I don't know. I mean, one of the things I think that people don't know about me is that I started in research and in the healthcare field and doing medical research and then found my way into improvement back in the 80s. And so at that time, I was following more of the Deming TQM, Total Quality Management Approach. Um, a lot of folks don't know that. They think I kind of inserted myself into the lean movement without all of that history behind me. It's kind of fun. The nice thing about having a history like that is you're able to see both sides. You see the, the consulting side, but you've lived it. And, and living it, I, I know one of the things you've seen is the chaos that pervades organizations. And that's one of these underlying themes in your book. There's a tremendous amount of chaos in an organization, and it comes from these external factors, you know, the, the economy, um, global competition, all those things. But your book really dives into the internally generated chaos. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we, we do to ourselves in organizations. With people being so smart and wanting to do well in their jobs, how does this chaos get into companies? <laughs> Good question. Um, so, yes, there's the external chaos that is largely uncontrollable. Some of it is controllable, but largely uncontrollable. And the whole reason why I wrote the book is to help organizations find a way to manage the type of chaos that is controllable. So it's, you know, kind of the we've met the enemy and it is us. So why chaos exists is typically because organizations haven't spent a whole lot of time looking at their foundational behaviors and looking at how they actually respond to crises and respond to new products and respond to growth and all of these different things. And so, you know, I, I took a step back when I saw over these, you know, decades of doing this kind of work, every improvement methodology that's come down the pike hasn't necessarily gotten the gains within, you know, for organizations that they had hoped for. And so lots of people have lots of theories on why that is, but I think it's far more fundamental than what anyone ever talks about. And that, that's what you know, drove me to look at these four behaviors of clarity, focus, discipline, and engagement, or the lack thereof, that often pervades organizations. So if leaders, it always starts at the top, if leaders aren't operating in a way that infuses those behaviors into the DNA of the organization, it's going to be very difficult to fully leverage Lean, Six Sigma, any of the improvement methodologies. What's well, the interesting thing about your book, though, is it's not just focused on Lean. 
you know, I see it as being able to help any corporation because it really hones in on these fundamental drivers, these, these fundamental things that you need to accomplish. And, you know, the, the benefit of your background is having gone in and seen all these companies in your, in your continuous improvement efforts. I'm sure you've seen these failures over and over, you know, people not following these, these foundational behaviors. Do you, do you have any moments of like the aha moments where you've said clarity is it or, you know, focus is missing. What what brought you to these four, you know, pillars, if you will, the foundational behaviors? Yeah, you know, it was really bizarre how it came to me. So it's a it's a question I've been asking for, you know, twenty blah 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 years, working with organizations. Like, what is it? What is it that makes organizations not any more successful than they are? And they're successful, but there there's just this unfulfilled potential that you know I have a passion for helping organizations discover. And what is it? So Literally, I am not kidding you. It happened one day after wrestling with this question for, you know, decades. It happened one day in the shower, and I'm not kidding you. It literally came in a, a two-minute wave of it's this, 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 this. And that happens with me when I write a lot where all of a sudden I'll get this, you know, some people call it divine inspiration. Some people call it a Jungian <laughs> act. I don't know what it is, but it just comes to me. And then it took me another two years of really chewing on those and making sure that those were legit. And, you know, looking at my past clients, looking at my current clients at that time and researching and talking with people and chewing, chewing, chewing until I was ready to put fingers to keyboard. Well, what made you do that? What was the the impetus to say you have this great idea? I mean, as an author, I know you want to get new books out there, but there's always some trigger, something that pushed you over the edge. What was it for you? Well, I mean, I, I love writing. I actually wrote fiction for a while before I got into business book writing. Um, not published, but but I've I've always loved writing. And so, yeah, I and I think I always have wanted to get my message out there, and writing has been the primary vehicle for me to do that. And now speaking, you know, is happening more and more. Um, so I think once I get a kind of firm opinion about something, then I go about being a good little scientist. I go about you know testing my hypothesis, and then once I I get enough data to think I'm really on to something, then then I just have this you know compelling need to write it down. Um, I, I don't know where that writing thing comes from. I think I was kind of born with that gene. So I don't know. <laughs> well, it's interesting that there is so much lean information out there. And, and one of the challenges I see when people come to me asking, how do you get started? You know, most people try to sift through everything's out there before they look for a coach. And a lot of these packages of information are just rebranding the same old thing. And when I see your book, I see what what feels to me like a new concept because of its, you know, the really direct way and the simplicity that it boils things down to. And obviously making improvements won't be simple, but if you have those guiding, you know, directions to go, I guess my question here is, is what makes your approach different and, you know, why does it stand out? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I really do believe that you've hit on what it is, this, this simplicity part of my message. I've, you know, kind of always liked taking complexity and drilling it down into simple, into more simple terms. My tagline is profit through simplicity. I was, I was just going to say <laughs> that, you know, this is, Karen's got a website. It's ksmartin.com. Is that correct? That's correct. 
Okay. And, and you can get a lot of great information there. And the other thing is she has a lot of um, information associated with her book and her previous book. She did a metrics-based process mapping um, with Mike Osterling, correct? Right. Correct. And so also she, the Kaizen event planner also. And all this information about those is available on our site. Uh, or on her site, I'm sorry. Uh, and it's ksmartin.com. Thanks. So ba- back to your other question. <laughs> I, yeah, I interrupted yeah. a little. No, no, thanks, thanks. So uh, the the simplicity part of it is, I think, what's so attractive. But simple isn't necessarily easy, to your point. And so what what people are responding to is that it's not some complicated algorithm or some you know new intellectual pursuit that they have to you know get, get on this journey to you know learn a new skill. It's all inherent in human nature. But what we're not doing is packaging it in a way where massive numbers of people all behave the same way. So in other words, you can have one person in the organization who leads with impeccable clarity and another person who, you know, doesn't know anything but ambiguity, <laughs> can't mm-hmm. communicate clearly. And if you have those people operating, you know, in two different parts of the organization, you're likely going to get two different results. And same with focus. If you've got one leader that can have just great focus, laser focus on the relevant few projects instead of the trivial many, and another one who tends to either change priorities as the winds change or, you know, someone who just tries to do too much at once, equal problems, you know, the organization's not going to be able to move together as a whole. And so what, what people are really responding to is like, wow. This stuff is really not complicated, but all we have to do is heighten the awareness and then develop some new behaviors. Like, for example, meetings. Now, I don't even talk about meetings that much in the book, but when people say, well, what can I do today? I'm like, start having well, high-functioning meetings. And one of the things in meetings is no electronic devices, none. I don't allow them when I'm working with clients. They are not permitted to be doing email texting and all that stuff while we're together because they don't, they're not able to achieve like they need to achieve when they have split attention spans or not split attention spans, but split attention and that type of thing. So why can't we do that in every meeting so that every meeting becomes far, you know, first of all, the meetings should be essential. And then if assuming they are, we want them to be high functioning. And so people just need to make a rule. There, there will be no electronic devices used in a meeting unless someone has to call someone for something relevant to the meeting. You know, and just simple things like that that I think we've kind of gotten off target in not thinking about the very foundational behaviors that make anybody successful. You know, even athletes and, you know, and artists and things like that. Well, that's, that's one of the challenges I have with talking to you is we get into conversations and more and more ideas pop up. (laughs) So, you know, the whole idea about meetings, you know, it starts making you think about, well, there's really no such thing as multitasking. You know, it's sequential switching is really what people do. Right. And I think you're right about that. You know, when people are in meetings and their attention is mixed, you you lose so much. So uh, I I like that on, on the electronics. And the other thing that comes up is you know, the common theme across all these foundational behaviors, it links back to this relationship and job satisfaction. So I think we've all at some point had that boss that gives these mixed messages or unclear directions. 
and it makes your job less fun and less enjoyable and you're less committed to it. And one of your, one of your foundations is engagement. Is that correct? Right. Absolutely. And that's kind of the follow on natural byproduct of the other three behaviors being practiced widely across an organization. You know, close to my heart is this whole idea of job satisfaction. You know, I, I focus on frontline engagement, frontline behaviors. And, and I love seeing how this book brings it down to that is, you know, the, if, if leaders want engaged teams, they have to look at their own behaviors first. Absolutely. So, I mean, as, you know, as you know, that's one of the pillars of the Toyota production system, Toyota business management practices, whatever you want to frame it as, you know, that respect for people is very broad. It's, it's a much broader definition of respect than we often think about. And I too, I share your passion for the front lines and middle managers and, and senior leaders for that matter. I, th- I think everyone's in a tough place in the workplace, but I don't think it has to be as tough as we make it. I agree. You know, it, it's funny when you actually listen to conversations. You know, the nice thing about what we do is you actually get open conversations with both sides of any kind of issue or, or you know, debate. And, and you realize that at the core, everybody's people and they have the same basic drives, basic needs. And, you know, it's just, it's fun to go through and see that. Yeah, you know, one of the things I wrestled with a bit in writing this book was this whole notion of if you look at all the lean practices and behaviors, they really um, – they require you to behave with these fundamentals in place. You know, for example, you know, one of the things with value stream mapping that I like so much and metrics-based process mapping as well is the level of clarity it can give an organization on what really is occurring in the current state versus what people think is occurring Mm -hmm. in the current state. So the tool itself helps infuse the behavior that you're trying to create, but yet my reason for writing the book was because the fun, there wasn't even enough of a foundation in place for organizations to realize the power of value stream mapping and, and be able to really accelerate their, their, you know, results as a result of that. And so it's kind of the chicken and the egg where, you know, you've got to start with some fundamentals in place. And yet if you just start, you also are going to build those fundamentals if you use lean practices and uh, the lean thinking and principles and the tools in the right way. Mm-hmm. So then it builds on each other's, and then it becomes you know greatly accelerated once you get to that level where now you can really reap the benefits of these practices and tools. That's when organizations start really soaring, and that that's what I'm passionate about is getting them to that point where they just you know like a rocket ship. And, you, and unstoppable. You know, one of the things earlier you'd said, you mentioned respect for people. And there's a sidebar towards the back of your book about that. <laughs> and it's really about how leadership refers to their teams. And I, I think it's Toyota that calls people team members and Starbucks calls them partners. But you often see more of a... um a disrespectful, you know, warm bodies, bodies, heads, mm-hmm. heads count. And it, it kind of shows a separation of that as not just a person with a brain. It's really just um, something to be used like a machine. And over the years, you know, I've, I've found those disrespectful attitudes. If you see that in a manager, it manifests in their behaviors. You know, if they talk about people that way. But do you see a link between using positive names for people, you know, 
the partners or team members and better performance? Yes. And not only do I see a link between those two, I think there's a link with every word we use. I, I'm, I'm a, a word nut and I believe very much that language has energy around it that can either, you know, heal or harm. Um, can either accelerate or delay, you know, or introduce delays. And, and I, I just really believe very much in words. And so when you look at, like, for example, I have a, a, a neighbor who is um, in HR and uses the term kids to refer to great majority of the workers at her employer. And they are quite young. I mean, it's a very young startup company and, um, you know, so significantly younger than, than she is. But I challenged her to think about what she does behaviorally because of that mental framing that she's doing. And, you know, she doesn't call them kids to their face, but, but she calls them kids to other people. And so it's the same thing if you call people, if you say, you know, we need another warm body or, you know, refer to people as bodies, it carries behavioral tentacles or, you mm-hmm. know, there's an extension to that. Um, I'm in the book, I, I stopped short of saying, here's what you should call people, you know, because I don't think that there's a right answer. I just wanted to heighten people's awareness to how words do matter and to, you know, really think hard about how you refer to people. What's interesting too, is there's two sides to that. Even if she doesn't mean anything negative by calling them kids, if you're called a kid in the workplace, it probably has meaning to you too. So I think... You know, there's a lot more to it than just what you're feeling. It's how it's received. Yeah, exactly. I mean, fortunately, I don't really think that they ever hear her refer to them as kids. But I can tell you that in conversations when she uses that word, it's not a positive definition. (laughs) So it's, you know, I think we create our own reality quite a bit by what we do, what we say, how we think. And um, I just you know think it's, it's good to keep a little eye on that when you're referring to people. Okay, moving on now. It's, it's interesting. As I prepare for podcasts, I often have some back and forth email conversations. And, you know, I've been doing Lean for a long time. So when I read a book, I very seldom come across things that are completely new to me. You know, I, I might have ideas that I add to what I've already known. But one of the things about your book is is this idea of PDCA versus the the Deming cycle or the Schuart style a cycle. Why don't you give a little history of that? And there's a piece of here that is something new to me. So why don't you go ahead and do a quick talk about the how you know what your view is on the PDCA or PDSA cycle? Yeah, thank you for asking it because it was really one of the most interesting kind of um, fulfilling parts of doing research for the book. You know, there's always these little favorite children you have as you're writing a book, and this was one of my favorite children. So, I what happened was I was noticing how healthcare was starting to use or not starting to use, but had adopted PDSA versus PDCA. And I was intrigued with, well, how did that happen when Toyota, you know, so regularly uses PDCA and all the early lean books used PDCA? And I actually have to this date never really gotten a, a firm answer on that one. But I started thinking about, you know, does it really matter? Well, you know, I just mentioned words matter, right? And so I, the whole thing that I've been experiencing, and this is back all the way to the 80s when I was using TQM, the, you know, the Deming approach for improvement. 
I was finding that people would get tripped up on what check meant and what act meant. And so they would either think that checking, well, they, you know, they didn't view it as an experiment to begin with, with the hypothesis that you're putting through and it, its paces and experimenting and then, you know, studying it and, and adjusting accordingly. Um, they, they would think that checking was a matter of just saying, aha, yeah, it's working and, and kind of moving on. Mm-hmm. And same with a, the act, you know, act was more of a doing than it was a reflecting and adjusting based on that reflection. So, I, you know, I, I started thinking, you know, maybe this does really matter. And maybe the healthcare industry, even though they've been, you know, woefully behind many industries in adopting a standardized approach to improvement and actually making improvement, maybe they're onto something. So then I started, because I've always called PDCA the Deming cycle. So then I started really looking into it and was shocked to learn that PDCA was never a Deming never came out of Deming's mouth, and that was not what he ever called it. And I also heard that PDSA was a Schuert cycle, and that too is not true. So then, you know, the sidebar in my book has the whole history of how the Schuert cycle became known because Deming was editing Schuert's publications, and then what happened with PDCA being more a Japanese executive's faux pas, um, that then became adopted. And I think it's just fascinating that something that we take as, you know, kind of the gospel that this was a Deming thing wasn't ever Deming's. <laughs> well, yeah, like, like I said, this is the, the aha thing for me. And I'm still skeptical, but, you know, one of the things about being lean is you, you go with the facts. And I know, you know, in Out of the Crisis, I know what he wrote about Schuart. And I know at the end of his career, it was PDS. But the Deming cycle I've just taken that. You know, I've never looked and said, who actually came up with PDCA? I've never seen it in any of Deming's works. So it's just one of those things, you know, the, the problem with talking to you is I always walk away going, oh, I better look into that some more. You know, <laughs> you, you walk away and I'm like, I think I know this stuff. And it's fun to read a book that makes you think like that. Well, and, thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad to serve in that purpose and <laughs> that role. Well, that, that's a good point to move on to is now, you know, part of it, like – like I'm saying for me is you never stop learning. I try to check myself. And that's one of the things, you know, the, the standard I hold to any kind of book or training materials to is, is it effective? And, you know, your book hasn't been out long enough to really have a track record. Record, You know, when you talk about a change in a lean organization, it can take years. Mm-hmm. But how should somebody buying your book go about tracking whether they're successful at putting those things in place? Uh, thank you for asking that because I do think it's important to do any kind of measurement that you possibly can. So I put together a an organizational self-assessment that's very intentionally fairly subjective because I, I really didn't want to have some kind of you know intense, onerous, academically laden study that people had to do, but rather a a vehicle for communication, heightening awareness, and starting conversations. Because a lot of this is going to take people, you know, it's like breaking any habit. First, you have to recognize that you want to change. Mm-hmm. And so the the assessment is a basic Excel-based assessment. It's free. It's available both on my website on the book page. And I think you mentioned the website before, ksmartin.com. That's S as in Sue, ksmartin.com. It's also available on my Scribd site. A lot of people don't know about Scribd, but it's a, um, a vehicle for non-PowerPoint kinds of, of documents. And it's S-C-R-I-B-D. And you can get to that through my homepage also. And what 
it what it uh, challenges organizations to do is to talk to different groups of people in the organization and ask some key questions that reflect these behaviors, the presence or the lack of these behaviors, and then use that as the foundation, you know, the baseline from which they can measure their progress as they systematically go through and heighten these behaviors that we're trying to get across the organization. So to the degree that they're able to move from a pretty unfocused approach and too many projects at one time to a much more focused, fewer projects at one time environment, you know, that that this assessment will enable them to measure that. Okay. And yeah, so I, I think that it's a it's an essential piece of reading the book and moving forward and getting results so that you have something that you can use to measure those. What's well, a good segue to this moving forward? You know, this book is done, you know, you've, you've gone through, you know, six months or so of promotion on it, I think. It's time to move on to something else, right? Yes. So many books, so little time. <laughs> yes. So I, uh, Mike Osterling and I have partnered back up again on another book, and this time we're tackling value stream mapping in the, you know, office service knowledge creative world. Mm-hmm. Um, we we feel that there's been a huge gap in the marketplace on a how-to book that addresses value stream mapping as far more than merely a process design tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're ex- we're really excited about it. It's going to be out toward the end of the year, I think. Okay. Well, I think with that, I'll just say thank you for for joining us here today. Thank you. And. I'll, I'll be in touch with you down the road and try and uh, get some more information on the actual results of this book. I'm, I'm really intrigued at, um, you know, I think, I think this is similar to losing weight. There's no <laughs> secret recipe to it, right? Fewer calories, more exercise, your weight will come down, right? Right. And it's kind of, kind of like this on the surface, that's your book. It's a very simple concept. And, you know, nice thing about your book, it gives a lot of meat about how to put those concepts to use. So I'm I'm interested in seeing. I think this book's got a lot of potential to make some good changes in in companies. Yeah, thank you very much. I think it has some legs to it. So things are going well with it so far. Well, good. And and again, thank you, and I'll talk to you soon. And and the, the book title, again, is The Outstanding Organization. Thanks for listening to the Gotta Go Lean podcast. You can find more episodes at www.velaction.com. That's V-E-L-A-C-T-I-O-N.com. Thanks for listening.